Support for HPR comes from Magnolia Boutique and Gallery in Kahala Mall, open daily, offering original art and gifts by Hawaii artists, including paintings, jewelry, clothing, and more. Also online at magnolia-hawaii.com. Earlier this morning, we talked to Honolulu Mayor Rick Blangiardi. He intended to announce a decision on a bill banning commercial activities on Windward Oahu beaches. He met with wedding vendors and Waimanalo residents this week, and this morning he told HPR that he won't make up his mind until next week, Tuesday. And I want to put it off only because I want to do a little bit more diligence. Candidly speaking, I was very moved by the testimonies I listened to yesterday with really good insight from the standpoint of the impact of commercialization. The irony of all of this is we've just spent the last two years trying to keep our wedding industry afloat, if you will, throughout COVID and, and you know, dealing with restrictions and what would be allowed and, you know, group size outside in all of that stuff. And so I've had a real sense of concern would be to say the least, but certainly compassion for people really well-intended wanting to do things at celebration of life so on. And even quite honestly, for all of us, we've all felt the anguish of all the kids who got robbed from high school proms and all that emotion and feeling oh, this is so good that we're going to put all this behind us as we evolve out of COVID. But I will tell you the, the insights to the amount of commercialization, this has nothing to do with the sanctity of marriage or weddings or joyous occasions, but the commercialization has gotten out of control. And I want to do a little bit more research about that just to be sure before we make a final decision. And that's as straight as I can tell you. Yeah, well, you know, uh, I, I see and I've done stories, you know, over the years about, yeah, the, the dilemma there and the complaints. And, and, you know, so you do see both sides. Uh, but I, I just know, you know, like my son, he was over in Kailua to go to a barbecue at the beach, and he had a terrible time finding parking. And, and he said, Mom, I hate Kailua. But I knew it wasn't that he hated Kailua. We all love Kailua and Waimanala, but we hate to see it overrun. And Kailua actually has a ban on, on the weddings and stuff. I mean, that's the mm-hmm. interesting thing. Right? I mean, Ikaika Anderson, as I understand it, several years ago, that was one of the things that people from Waimanala were saying is, you know, Kailua put the ban in and nobody, you know, there was no big noise about it, but we feel like we're voiceless people. You know, because I've gone all the way through it. I need to tell you, I did sign in support well before I became mayor in support of the Sherwood Forest. I, I really didn't think that they needed to do that there, and I was in support of on that petition to stop that, and, and then other things as well. So I, I kind of tend to be traditionalist that way. You know, we, I was also very much in support of on taking down haiku stairs, which we're going to do. There are some things here that I think we need to clean up that people just didn't want to make the hard decisions on. So they got my attention yesterday. I just want a chance to really understand it in more detail. We spent about an hour and 20 minutes it was very civil, but it was really heartfelt. And, and that, that got to me because they, they live there. These are Waimanalo residents. And kind of like what you just said about your son, but they brought some people in here who had really good stories to tell who were very credible. So I want some time now to really make sure we do the right thing here. I do feel for the wedding industry. And as I re- said to them yesterday, the wedding industry people that I've met all look and sound like you. I mean, they're all local people trying to make a living. And they've been really stretched, you know, and so, and they don't disagree with that. They understood that, too. And some of them said, look, we have friends, we have relatives that are in the wedding business, but this is, you know, this is for this place. This is for the good of the Aina. 
it's just it's gotten way out of hand. So, but I also want to look at the bill a little bit more. To be honest with you, I, I'm not so sure we've got the best piece of legislation, Catherine. To be honest with you, the city can only go so far in this. The city can can say we're not going to allow the commercializations, but the wedding permits are granted by DLNR. It's at the state level. So, even if we stop the commercialization, getting permits to get married on the beach and, and the commercial aspects of that, I mean, we may be able to stop the limos from coming in and all, some of the other peripheral things. I need to get more detail on it. But I was really confused about the fact that this is sort of a joint city-state, and DLNR right now has given out a lot of permits. It's not that difficult to get to get married. And I'm sitting there saying, how do we enforce this? You know, and if it's just from the standpoint, let's just say in the most romantic situation you could imagine of just a couple and they two of their friends and they have a kahu who's going to perform the ceremony. There's five people on the beach. But they were saying, well, you know, but if the kahu gets paid or if somebody just pays, even if they don't you know, bring a limo, but if they bring in a photographer, that photographer is getting paid. It, it's the enforcement, too. And, and, and that's part of what I, we want to look at on, on, on what, what's an acceptable norm based on a bill right now that I think is quite honestly has issues. But what's the acceptable norm here that would be workable that we can make happen? Because I, I can't, you can't expect HPD is going to walk down and go, okay, there's five people down there and they're getting married and go. I, they're not going to do that. Okay, so you want to hold off until Tuesday for a decision? We'll hold off. We'll do a lot okay. more research over this weekend discussions. I already have a, a whole list of people I'm going to call because, candidly speaking, it wasn't much of an issue going through the first three. It was in the third hearing when the ban got introduced. Up till then, they were working on some really looked and sounded very collaborative and understanding. It was calling for permits, not a ban. It was calling for a minimum, you know, minimal amount of permits. It seemed like everything was headed towards a workable solution with the, with the wedding industry. And then, and then as to put the ban in, and that's when everything went haywire, and that just happened. So we're trying to respond and react accordingly, but that takes some due diligence. And Mary, you mentioned the River of Life, you know, exiting Chinatown. You think that's going to be a game changer? I think it is. In fact, we're, I want to acknowledge Ren Watermo. Yesterday, I had the opportunity to go through and meet all the staff and thank them for their incredible generosity of spirit and what they've done. I think you know they've been there for 35 years, as you mentioned, but over the course of that time, have served 12 million meals. I mean, they've helped a lot of people through thick and thin who are who are down and out. But the fact of the matter is, preponderance of people we have right now on the streets, especially in Chinatown, we know for a fact suffer from you know medical problems, substance abuse problems. And I've always said all along, I didn't want to criminalize homelessness, but we also had a criminal element down there. Now, we've stepped in with our police presence over the course of the past year and really beefed that up and made a lot of arrests down there and dealing with the criminal element. But nonetheless, you know, because it was a place of food distribution in the aggregate, it was drawing a lot of people there who just would then eat and lay on the sidewalks and throw stuff around. It just became really quite honestly a very unsafe, unhealthy situation for a lot of the people who not only lived there, but people who worked there, the businesses, people who would visit there, et cetera. And so I think River of Life, we were, able to, we were able to come to an understanding that what we had was dysfunctional, even though the intent was really good, the unintended consequence was unacceptable, it had been that way for a long time, and we were able to come to a shared vision of what we're trying to get done in Chinatown and what they want to do with their ministry. And lo and behold, yesterday was what everybody told me will never happen, happen, and that is, you know, uh, and you heard Ram Watermost's testimonies, that they're, they're, they're leaving, and yesterday they served their last meal. In fact, I had a, a little bit of that last, <laughs> last food they were serving. So for me, it was a milestone event. 
I think it's going to have a big impact in our efforts in Chinatown. We're pretty excited about the future of Chinatown. I've had some very interesting meetings lately. We made a commitment to that. I know commitments have been made for many mayors, but this time around, we're going to do it. Well, you know, Mary, I know I did uh, uh, connect with uh, Laura Thielen with Partners of Care. I know she has said the numbers have gone down uh, in the Chinatown area, and there are a lot of efforts, uh, community efforts, to try and give it a facelift and make it a safer, a more attractive place to be. Well, you know, if, if we could just go back in time, I don't know how far back we have to go, and you were to pick a spot and say, let's build a little commune here, if you will. Chinatown is a beautiful, it's in a beautiful place. You know, on Oahu, and it, it now, in the way since that time, the way things have evolved with the downtown corridor and everything else, I mean, in, in all the historic and all the other aspects of what Chinatown represents, as Chinatowns do in other cities, but here especially, given given our own personal history, uh, we, we, we ought to have that looking as good as possible, make it very attractive for people to live and work and play interested in some of the workforce housing that we can develop so we can get younger people to decide to live down there, the different projects we're working on. I mean, I, I tend to be very idealistic, but I think, honestly, the time has come. And I think that, you know, again, going back to River of Life mission is just one example of the changing times. And I want us, from the city and county standpoint, to be all over that and take advantage of everything we can here to make Chinatown just, just you know, just to make it shine. Make it shine. That was part of a conversation we had with Honolulu Mayor Rick Blangiardi this morning. We will hear more from him coming up in the show. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, providing art experiences for the community. Learn more about new drop-in workshops and spring art classes for adults and keiki at honolulumuseum.org. Earlier we heard part of a conversation that we had with Honolulu Mayor Rick Blangiardi. This morning he told us that with the tourism numbers rebounding, the hotel room tax collection has been healthy. And while there is still some inflation uncertainty with the Ukraine situation, He's hopeful that our tax coffers will be stable to help with our rail financing. We hear more about the thinking behind the pause of the rail project at the Honolulu Civic Center and about whether he thinks we'll have the needed ridership numbers. This week, uh, FTA analysts have been in town for a risk refresh on the rail project. Blaine Giardi says he's committed to help try and help cut costs to make this project work. Our bus service is a tremendous bus service. And the proclivity, if you will, for so many people who, from a financial standpoint, don't have cars or want the ease of transportation, certainly can't pay prohibitive parking fees, you know, which are going up, it seems, at every point in time because there's such limitations on our parking. We have a population that takes public transportation. This thing, unfortunately, got off the ground so poorly. It was a broken promise from the get-go. It was going to be at a certain cost point. It was going to go to UH. Next thing you know, before anybody knew, it wasn't going to happen that way, and it was going to be a lot more money. It was going to be years delayed, and, oh, yeah, by the way, we'll change the destination. And they worked out a full funding agreement on the Mayor Carlisle in 2012 to say, okay, we're going to go to Alamoana, and we'll call this a, you know, a, a fully functional rail of 20 miles and 21 stops and, and so on. But, 
that was even arbitrary and people were upset about that and then you know just before we came in the prior administration fired the ceo pulled out the p3 which they claimed for more than a couple of years was going to be the method of financing and then suddenly you know we're being told at the same time yeah it won't be completed till 2033 and oh by the way with 3.67 billion billion would it be short i mean that was a lot to walk into so we're trying to create sanity here on what we can do and so at the end of the day as i said in my state of the city you break it down and say okay how much money do we have you know if we look at the funding resources presuming we can get the full 1.55 and by the way the federal government gave us 800 million in the beginning and pulled back we've not gotten a nickel from the feds since 2017 and that 744 million that they've withheld has caused us to have to borrow for construction was never part of the plan almost a billion dollars and the carrying cost on that is over $400 million. And in fact, if we're successful in getting them to agree that we can go to Civic Center, we prove that we have both the technical and the financial capacity to do that. And I'll come back to the financial capacity in a second. They're here today looking at our technical capacity, even though this refresh, by the way, has been going on every month. They just came to town now. And I was just back there in Washington. But we, in this day and age of you know, communication and technology. I mean, they've been looking at everything we've been doing along the way and blessing it, if you will, along the way. So this is just to get up close and personal and the benefit of of, of coming on-site visit versus just analyzing papers from afar. But come back to that. If we can get the feds to agree, which is what I requested, to, to get back in as our construction partner at the table, helping us fund the construction, and I asked for it in three tranches. Over the next 36 months alone, that $744 million will save us $100 million in financing alone, not the least of which is we come to some clarity on the first phase of this project. This thing needs to be a multi-phase project. All we want to do is put a ribbon and define clearly for the people who live here and for the FTA as our construction partner what that looks like. So we've come up with 18.75 miles. It's going to be two stops short. Civic Center allows us to create down the Halekuila South Street a really great bus transit system that will expedite people to Almuana, to Waikiki, to UH. Uh, it was always going to be multimodal anyway. And then we'll take a look at what Phase 2 looks like, whether or not that has federal monies, whether it's the state, whether it's private sector. Nobody's giving up on Almuana in the short term or the possibility of going out further to UH. Or for that matter, building at the back end. I've said all along, you look at where rail starts and stops, if you will, in Kapolei, it's sort of in the middle of a field if you've been out there. Mm-hmm. I've said, why did they build into Kamakana Lee? That's even e- an easier construction. There's almost nothing in their way compared to what we're going to be facing coming down the Dillingham Corridor. So all of this that we've done over the last 15 months is to bring clarity and ease, if you will, from the standpoint of the anxiety about this thing being a, I don't want to use a bad pun, a runaway train here, but the cost escalation. So when we looked at our four sources of funding, which is, you know, the FTA, 1.55, assuming we don't get financially penalized, and we don't, we're hoping that we won't, the, 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 what the GETTAT state allocation is, which takes us out through 2030, what the new city TAT is over the next nine years, and what that infuses, which we estimate could be as much as 400 million, and then the 214 million that the city had in. When you put all those that, that together, that's that 9.8 billion. Without raising property taxes, without being a, okay, so what can you build for 9.8 billion? Well, all of our technical reports, we've had now three validated, comes in. We can think we can get the city center as long as we defer 
the building of the Pearl City Highlands garage, which was an ill-conceived concept. I get it from a TOD standpoint, but to build a garage for $330 million, which comes out for 1,600 stalls to a cost of $206,000 per stall. Yeah, ludicrous. Negligible result, you asked me about ridership. The models, it's negligible as far as on the ridership. So if you're doing that, first of all, you have to charge like $60 a day for a long time. Nobody's going to pay $60 a day to ride the rail park at Pearl City. We're going to defer that. Let's still build a bus transit and the on-ramp. So the point is to all of this, if we can do this and we get 18.75 miles and we're not raising any money, we know we can do it. We've got the timelines mapped out. We're hopefully going to be providing service to Aloha Tower by this summer, late summer. We think we'll be at Middle Street in less than two years, February of 24, maybe possibly January, with a guideways already there. As we turn the corner and come down the Dillingham Corridor and then through Chinatown, Bishop Street to Civic Center, that's the part that's going to take a while. So we'll have a five-year pause possibly out of operating out of Middle Street. But we expect to get the Civic Center by May of 29. So today is April 1st. It's seven years from now, we have this first phase done. So everybody can measure this, they can calibrate it, the expectations are there, the funding is there, the construction is there, and that's all we were trying to do. Now, if there's another phase to the rail, it's gonna have to be looked at financially and every other way, but this phase one, that gets us through the big three employment centers, spells a lot of relief to residents in Kapolei who wanna take that commute, but really, where the bulk of the ridership is going to happen is going to be in the Dillingham Corridor. That was a conversation we had with Honolulu Mayor Rick Blangiardi this morning about the rail project. City transportation officials are reassessing bus routes in the Civic Center area. The city hopes to test out the interim rail service with the trains later this summer. And after being shut down due to the pandemic, Hart is planning to resume community open houses at the rail stations probably in June or July. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, Bavarian Motor Experts, and Chaminade University. You are back with The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. And joining us for today's reality check is Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Paula Dobbin. She has a story uh, about complaints uh, into high-pressure cosmetic sales on Maui. Good morning, Paula. Good morning. So, gosh, this activity is happening on Front Street? Yes. um, It's been going on for several years, but uh, during the pandemic, some of the shops went away. Now that things are normalizing, um, the shops are back, and they are uh, on the streets hawking uh, their products to customers. Um, A lot of people say that the sales tactics are very aggressive. Um, we got a tip from a man who, whose wife got suckered into one of these stores and um, ended up, you know, paying over $4,000 uh, for cosmetics. And uh, he tried to get his money back. Um, you know, that, that still hasn't happened. So, um, you know, we started looking into it, and uh, that's kind of what resulted in today's story. Yeah, I mean, it's astounding. Thousands of dollars for, for makeup. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, a variety of skincare products, mm-hmm. but it is, you know, it's pricey. Um, you know, this this isn't just um, happening on Front Street in Lahaina. Uh, these cosmetic businesses are apparently in like 36 states, and they operate in uh, several overseas countries. Um, so it's kind of a big 
big issue. Um, it's a multi-billion dollar business. And uh, seems like a lot of the parent companies are based in Israel. Um, a lot of the salespeople, you'll notice, have um, what sound like Israeli accents. So it's, a, it's an interesting situation, <laughs> to put it mildly. Well, so w- what's the connection exactly? I mean, so do these folks just come and go? Um, yes, they, they tend to work here for short periods of time, and then they move on. Many of them are reportedly um, ex-military. Um, in Israel, it's mandatory to serve in the Israeli Defense Forces. And then once they get out, um, you know, they, they have a year off. A lot of them take a year to just travel around the world, but they need money to do that. And they need money to save so that when they go back to Israel, they can afford to, you know, buy a house or, you know, just get into life over there as an adult. So a lot of them are young, um, ex-military, and, um, you know, they're just trying to make money. Um, I've heard that they don't get paid a regular wage. It's all commission pretty much. Um, And so that's why they're aggressive because they want to make sales and uh, make money. And we understand that you check with the uh, Office of Consumer Protection, so they're looking into this as, as well. Uh, yes, they are. Um, the the man who heads that office, the executive director, wouldn't confirm that they're looking into the specific complaint that we became aware of with this couple that you know, lost over, I think it was $4,600. He wouldn't confirm that it's tied specifically to that case, but he said they are looking into the situation overall. And what about uh, the county? You know, what, what can they do? Well, uh, that's an interesting question. Um, it kind of depends on who you talk to. Uh, there, you know, there is an ordinance that says um, people are not allowed to sell stuff on a sidewalk, a public sidewalk. Um, but then the issue is, well, who's going to enforce that law? Who is enforcing that law? And I spoke to um, a county zoning inspector. He said he's the only inspector for the whole west side of Maui. So he's kind of a busy guy, you know, regulating illegal seawalls, monitoring big development projects and whatnot. And he doesn't really have the time to stand up, stand on Front Street and take photographs of, of this activity. He did do that a few years ago, and that resulted in some uh, notices of violation against these um, stores. But that um, ended in a, uh, in a settlement. Uh, the stores paid $1,000 and agreed they weren't going to do this anymore. But you know, it didn't really uh, solve the situation, shall we say. Right. So while the state is looking at, uh, you know, what the sales tactics, uh, I guess, then it's really on the counties to try and figure out, you know, what they can do. Well, um, you know, the the Office of Consumer Protection is a state agency. And, um, you know, if a business is found to be violating um, or engaging in deceptive and unfair trade practices, you know, fines can be issued that way. Um, so, you know, I think the state has a role to play. The county certainly has a role to play. And um, some say the federal government has a role to play because, you know, if these are young people from overseas, you know, with tourist visas and they're actually working, you know, that's a violation of immigration laws. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, are they paying taxes on the, on these sales? Yeah. Uh, there, there's a lot to look into, let's put it that way. All right. Well, thanks so much, Paula. You bet. Take oh, care. That was reporter Paula Dobbin here with today's Reality Check from Honolulu Civil Beat. To read the story, go to civilbeat.org.
Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. An anonymous donor gave $10 million to Midpac Institute this week. It's the single largest gift in the school's history. The private school is tucked away on 43 acres in Manoa Valley and has over 1,300 students. So how will this donation benefit students now and in the future? The Conversations Russell Subiano sat down with Mid-Pacific President Paul Turnbull. We have a few priorities in the coming years that are instrumental to our evolution as a 21st century school and a, a school that espouses deeper learning. And the, the $10 million gift ultimately will help us in terms of financial sustainability by allowing us a little bit more flexibility where the increased fixed costs of any organization or any institution occur on an annual basis. So we'll be able to offset those fixed costs and redirect funds back into our curriculum. And then the other piece on the financial side that's crucial to us is the fact that more individuals, more families will have access to financial aid. When you talk about the evolution of the school, it seems like it's already on the cutting edge of teaching techniques, learning techniques, integrating technology and and other new ideas. Can you talk a little bit more about where you hope to evolve into? I think where Mid-Pacific ends up has to be put in context with with where education as an industry is today. And it's really important to note that education that we know of, that all of us have been a part of, we have all around the world essentially been students and have sat in a desk in rows in a classroom. We've been exposed to a school system that was built for a factory model that became very successful across the 20th century. And the problem that we see right now is that that 20th century factory model is not equipped to deal with the rapid changes around the world in terms of economic, social, and political issues. And because of that, our goal at Mid-Pacific has always been to decrease the amount of time it would take to expose students to the real world, to thinking like real-world problem solvers and to allow them to become the architects of their future. As we step forward, our goal now is to consider where students are going to be in 2035. And to give you context again, our current kindergarten class is the class of 2035. So if you think about the massive changes that have occurred over the last five years, just imagine what those changes will look like by 2035, 17 years or so away from where we are today. Our goal then is to say the future of education looks like a couple of things. First of all, the most successful schools are going to be hubs in networks. They are not going to resemble the highest castle on the highest hill where resource acquisition is the goal. Instead, schools will be working together to bring as many different teachers from as many different areas geographically and what hybrid model in terms of in-person and online together. They're going to bring as many students together, again, from different geographical locations. And they're going to do it in a way that focuses on the, the category of learning and core essential questions of learning and mastery, rather than just simply saying, let's check off seven different boxes to say that you qualified for X number of hours of seat time in, in a particular uh, discipline. Therefore, you are going to be successful in the future. 
Are there any plans for the school to expand physically, acquiring more land for facilities or bringing back dormitories to attract boarding students? We're not in a place to expand in terms of our physical footprint. That, that's actually contrary to where we want to focus. Right now, our focus is on deepening the core of our teaching and learning side. And so that means that any changes for capital for us would be, for example, six years ago, we converted one of our older aging facilities into a, a learning commons for the sixth grade. Very flexible. It reflects the, the deeper learning spirit that we have here at Mid-Pacific. The next building that we're going to work on will resemble that. It will be for the seventh and eighth grade as a learning commons. And then we'll also be installing a new track and the accompanying equipment. Does the cost of living here, does that impact the way the school is able to use funds like this? Yes and no. First of all, it's important to recognize that $10 million going toward an institution of learning especially a school of our size with a small endowment, means that those particular funds are transformational for us. And regardless of the, the cost of living and, and sort of our, our neighborhood, right, our, our Hawaiian context, $10 million for us underwrites a significant ability to transform where the school is today and leverage that transformation so that it continues to build and grow into the future. And it sounds like the money will also benefit students, that want to attend that may need a little bit of help with the tuition as well. We'll be able to extend our reach into the community by allowing more students to attend Mid-Pacific who couldn't otherwise have attended. We'll be able to expand our reach by working with community partners that we wouldn't have otherwise been able to work with. And more importantly, we'll be able to continue the really innovative work that we've been doing in deeper learning and bring together other school partners and help them transform their particular operations from that very traditional 20th century base to a very progressive 21st century model. I know your school takes a lot of pride in giving students the skills and the mindset to shift and grow as the world around them evolves and expands. How has the school incorporated its response to the pandemic into teaching students how to adapt to an evolving world? You know, ultimately, the direction we're headed in right now is the same direction we were headed in before the pandemic began. The pandemic only affirmed for us that our belief and our vision was actually on target. We believed that having students think critically, understand that creatively working with other individuals and other networks was crucial, that ultimately the way that you look across hemispheres, for example, and, and you see an international perspective to particular issues is actually beneficial. It's not beneficial to be necessarily tied to one dimensional. And so because of all of those things, layered on top of a very robust technology platform, and then working in concert with all the programs that we already have on campus here, really our, our sole purpose right now is to follow through on our vision for 2035. It is to break down more barriers, to have students think in more systems methods, and for them to understand that you know, turning the 21st century on its head is important because it means that we're giving them the intellectual, creative, and individual capital to thrive in the new economy. Things that we're doing right now are they're just speeding up. The pandemic didn't actually change much about the way we were looking about the future. Well, thank you so much for your time, Paul. Not at all. Thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate it. 
That was Mid-Pacific Institute's President Paul Turnbull talking with HPR's Russell Subiono about how the school will use its $10 million donation. Well, that's it for us today. I'm Catherine Cruz. Have a great Aloha Friday, everybody. A great weekend. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Aloha Care, a Hawaii health plan specializing in Medicaid health insurance, committed to the health of Hawaii's communities. AlohaCare.org.